We have a uh, special treat. We have a guest uh, speaker, someone coming to bring the word to us this morning. And that is Dave Lamerton, who's one of our board members here at Vision and a longtime member of this church, him and his wife. So uh, would you welcome him? He's here to preach, even with a brand new born baby. So uh, bless you this morning. Thank you. Go for it. Can I pray for you? Is that okay? Please. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray for Dave. Lord, we just thank you this morning for Dave, for his willingness to, to uh, bring your word to us this morning. Just ask that your hand would be upon him, your anointing would rest upon him. God, give him uh, just clarity of heart, clarity of mind. May he know your leading, may he know your peace, Lord God. And may, uh, as he speaks this morning, may they be your words to us, Lord. Give us open hearts, I pray, and ears to hear what you would say to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go for it. Cheers, mate. Is that okay, Cam? Good morning. Before I get started, I just want to tell a quick story. Uh, So, before, in order to give you context of this, my sermon is about David. I won't give away the ending of the sermon, needless to say that God wins. Um, But basically, earlier in the the week, or last, last year I should say, I've been talking and thinking about the, the main parts of this sermon for a very long time. So I was at, uh, Luke and Esther gave me the opportunity to present at their Bible study, uh, so, which went quite well. And I've adapted most of that into today's sermon. So needless to say, I've been thinking about the, the main thrust and the main points of this sermon for a very long time. So I don't think it's a coincidence that on Friday night, I was there watching the cricket on the main TV and the football on my phone, as most people do. And... I got a call, a random call, from my cousin, David. David is a man on fire for God, and he was just incredible. The way that he spoke to me and the way that he just encouraged me. I haven't seen him or heard from him for about four or five years, but it didn't matter. It was like we just picked up where we left off. And I told him that on Sunday I'll be coming to church to speak about David, and he was even extra excited. And he said, let me just pray for you. So he just gave me the most passionate prayer over the phone. And it just left me and encouraged me so much. One final thing about David is that where he lives in rural Queensland, there's no internet. At his property, there is no internet. You'd have a better chance of getting a signal on the face of Neptune or Uranus. It's that bad. It's that remote. So he said, you know what? Send me the link. I'll walk to the top of a mountain. I'll get a signal and I'll tune in on Sunday morning. So welcome, Dave, and anybody else online. So for those of you who were here last week, Adam rounded out a sermon series that they've been working on at the moment called Distinct Markers. So if you'll let me, I'll have today's sermon as an epilogue to that series. Catherine, Adam and some of the guest speakers spoke and gave really passionate words about what it means to be a people of transformation, a people of love and being a people of steadfastness. So today I want to add to that by being what it means to be a people of courage. (laughs) So where better to look than in the valley of Elah between David and Goliath? No matter who you are, you have a Goliath in your life. No matter who you are, you could do with some more courage. So what is David's story and what does the experience of David tell us 3,000 years later and how can we better face the Goliaths in our life. But before, before we do that, let's pray. Lord, give us courage. 
Give us courage to face the challenges of the present day. Lord, encourage us with the example of your great servant, David. Help us to understand the size of you and how infinitely bigger you are than any problems or challenges we will ever face. Amen. In terms of how I want to structure today's uh, sermon, I want to give a little bit of background. Next slide, please. Um, I want to cover the events, so I want to give a bit of background history, cover the events that led up to the duel and the Valley of Elah, give a few of my own perspectives, and then round it out by what this means to us. So to set the scene for this, I want to go back a little bit. Israel at this point was in its infancy. Around 1100 BC, the area of Israel was, known, was, was run by a loose confederation of chieftains, better known as the period of judges. Due to overwhelming threats from external foreign threats, they decided to group together into a somewhat homogenous grouping. Whilst Abimelech was the first man declared king of Israel, Saul was the first man anointed king of Israel by Samuel. Despite Saul's kingship going slowly, badly, he remained king for a very long time. Enter to the story a small shepherd born in Bethlehem. The Lord told the elderly Samuel, possibly one of the most important and influential people in all of Israel, to go to Jesse. He asked Jesse to bring all of his sons out. And then some very profound things happen. As we turn to 1 Samuel 16, 6 to 7. And so it happened. When they had come, Samuel looked at Eliab, the eldest son, and thought, the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, if there's anything you take from today, please make it this. So, I'll repeat it. For the Lord sees not as the man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Seven of Jesse's sons passed by Samuel, yet none are chosen. Perhaps a little flummoxed, Samuel sort of turns to Jesse and says, do you happen to have any more sons? Taken a little aback, Jesse sends for David, who he describes simply as the youngest. In fact, the Hebrew word here is hakadon, which means not worthy. You don't have to raise your hand, but who here has felt like this? Who's felt like the runt of the litter? With these feelings of insignificance, who's felt forgotten? Who's felt like the last one chosen, even by loved ones? So David eventually comes into the room, dirty from minding the sheep, and God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. The smallest and presumably the dirtiest is anointed by Samuel, not because of his outward appearance, but because the Lord looks at his heart. Even better, David was anointed as the future king of Israel in front of all of his older brothers. As a youngest brother called David myself, I thought that was important to highlight. <laughs> so that's when the people of Bethlehem first hear about David, but what about the people of Israel? This is, of course, in the Valley of Elah against Goliath. 
recently, early at the start of last year, I reread a very interesting book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you may have heard of this book. So, Malcolm is a Jewish person, but I, would not, I doubt that he would identify as a Jewish author. So, just as way of disclaimer, certain aspects of this sermon are a modern interpretation, a modern scientific interpretation of what could have happened in the Valley of Elah. Let's give that as a disclaimer up front. Malcolm Gladwell argues that the way that this story is told in the Western world follows a pretty standard formula. A small underdog against overwhelming odds defeats a giant. However, he argues that almost every aspect of this story is more nuanced than that. Not wrong, nuanced. Especially when it's compared, when it's actually against the, the way that it's told these days. So therefore, I want to relook at this story from two perspectives, being man's perspective and God's perspective, starting with man's perspective. We often view David as the underdog in this battle, and that's in part because we're conditioned to think that way, and it suits the narrative. When we think about a military duel, we probably think about two cowboy and western-style gunslingers drawing pistols at the exact same moment. However, given there's some military men in the room, I have to be very careful to not to try to come across as too much of an expert with this next statement, one of which includes Gary Slater, who some of us haven't seen in a very long time. So welcome, Gary. It's good to see you again, brother. One of the underlying principles of military doctrine has always been, where possible, pit your strengths against your enemy's weaknesses. And on this point, Israel isn't as hopelessly outmatched as you may think. David only finds himself at the battle because he's bringing provisions for his brothers. At this stage in his life, he's still a shepherd boy. And when he arrives at the battlefield, probably seeing a battlefield for the first time, he hears this almighty man towering above the Israelites, screaming the most vile things, and nothing's happening. In fact, the Israelis simply run away. Now, if this sounds familiar, you'd be correct. Because David, being a good Israelite, he would know his Torah. If he couldn't read it, he probably would have heard about it as an oral history growing up. And that definitely includes Numbers 13 and 14. Adam spoke about these chapters only a couple of weeks ago in the context of how your tongue is like the the rudder of a ship. So I'll briefly go over them. But essentially, as we remember and as Adam said, after Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they arrived at the land of Canaan. God then instructed Moses to instruct the elders of each of the tribes to go out and explore the lands of Canaan for 40 days. And when they come back, they give their report. Now this is land that God has said, I am giving to the Israelites. He could not have been clearer on this point. Then upon their return, the men provide their reports. They say, the land does flow with milk and honey. But then they report on the cities and the people who are there, and this is the really damning bit. They say, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seem like grasshoppers in their eyes, and we look the same to them. In the context of the history of Israel and what God had done before, during, and after this event, it's pretty hard to read those lines, isn't it? For as you turn to Numbers 14, we discover God's response. For those who doubted him, all those that turned their back on his provision would never see the promised land. 
For every day of their exploration of the lands, God would punish them with a year of wandering the desert. Right up until all of them had died. 40 years of wandering the desert and a death sentence for doubting God. Now back to the Valley of Elah and David is not about to make the same mistake as he, as his countrymen, as he is the only Israelite who will not be moved. He is probably the only Israelite that knows his God is so much bigger than Goliath and is willing to act upon it. As we know, Saul suggests that David wears his armour, but David quickly takes it off. If David engages Goliath in hand-to-hand combat, he most definitely would have lost. He is not going to engage Goliath on Goliath's terms. Call it what you will, but David is distinct from his brothers, from his countrymen, even from the king. So, David opts for a sling. That's crazy, right? Not exactly. The sling may seem like a simple weapon, but in the hands of a skilled operator, it was a very effective weapon. Accounts from ancient times through the Middle, a- to the Middle Ages, in some cases, say that small bands of slingers turn the entire tide of a battle. And a skilled slinger could hit a target at 200 yards consistently, and closer in, they could hit a bird in flight. So that's David. Now let's focus on Goliath. The exchanges between Goliath and David are relatively brief. Picking up straight after David's refusal to take Saul's sword, we read 1 Samuel 17, 40-44. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. In ancient warfare parlance, Goliath is considered a heavy infantryman. He carries a shield, a sword, a javelin, and a spear. He's very slow moving, but in hand-to-hand combat, he's very effective. He may be able to hurl his his javelin out to, say, 20 metres, but essentially his area of domain is the area right in front of him. So as Goliath challenges the Israelites, he expects to fight another heavy infantryman. That's why he says, come to me so that I can feed your flesh to the birds and the wild beasts. Goliath expects the duel to be fought hand-to-hand. Come to me. Goliath knows his strengths, as he's proven this time and time again, but he's also aware of his weaknesses. Another example of this can be seen in the text. In the biblical account, it says that Goliath's shield-bearer went before him. Now, this may seem innocuous, but there could be a simple explanation for this, and that is that Goliath couldn't see Later on in the account, when David readies himself for battle, he takes with him his pouch with five stones in it and his shepherd's staff. One staff, which is one stick. But as per the the verse, Goliath says sticks. Why does he use the plural? It's possible. It's for the same reason that his shield bearer goes before him into the battlefield. Modern scientists have some theories. 
Goliath is supposedly very tall. When someone is that much taller than the normal person, there's usually an explanation. Goliath was somewhere between 8 feet 5 inches and 10 feet 6 inches. In vision church terms, that's 1.5 Tony Lewis's. <laughs> Officially, the world's tallest man, Robert Wardlow, was 8 feet 11 inches at his death. And he had the most famous case of acromegaly. His great size and continued growth in adulthood were due to the increase and growth of muscle cells in the pituitary gland here in the base of his brain, which resulted in an abnormally high level of human growth hormones. Why this is important is that we now know that one distinct side effect of this condition is that it principally compresses the visual nerves. You'll see, for instance, that Robert has glasses as an example of this. This possibly explains why the shield-bearer leads Goliath onto the field of battle and why he believes that David has sticks when, in fact, he only has one. The fact is that Goliath can't see at a distance who he is fighting. I want to ask you this question. How often do we get overawed by the challenge in front of us? When in reality, the challenger may, in fact, be far less dangerous than we give it credit for. Man looks at stature, the Lord looks at the heart. At this point, the two adversaries, the teenaged Israelite and the seasoned Philistine warrior, are still a distance apart. After David gives one of the greatest speeches in the Bible, 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47, you can read it later, the two adversaries read in themselves. Goliath lumbers up to the battle line. David runs up to the battle line. He takes out a stone, puts it in the sling, twirls it around a couple of times and releases it straight into Goliath's forehead. He falls face first into the, de- into the dirt, dead. Don't bother calling a medic. In a matter of moments, David has proclaimed the Lord's name as the one true God of Israel. He's defeated a giant and he's defeated an entire army of invading Philistines. And better yet, he's done it in front of his older brothers. The hulking, scary Goliath doesn't move a muscle. In the end, this isn't a fight or a fair fight. For a skilled slinger like David, this was like an execution range. David puts the rock in the sling, swings it around a couple of times and releases. Modern ballistics have said that when that stone hits Goliath's head, it's travelling at about 35 metres a second. That's faster than Adam Richard can bowl. And believe it or not, this stone has the stopping power of a 45 Magnum handgun. So there's no wonder that it sinks into Goliath's forehead. So there we have it. Believe in yourself. Understand that things aren't as bad as they seem. Understand that the challenge probably isn't as bad as it looks. And you too can overcome overwhelming odds just like David through your own power. Thank you for attending my TED Talk. And here starts the sermon. If I was to leave it there, you might get some nice feel-goods about overcoming overwhelming odds. But I want to delve a little further into this story and why David, a humble shepherd, could achieve this seemingly impossible feat. And for that, we need to go back a bit further. I want to look at the other perspective of of this story being God's perspective. As we know, David is a shepherd. In the Valley of Elah, in his pitch 
to Saul as to why he was qualified to fight Goliath. He says, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 36. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. So in this passage, we have two elements. We have David's motive. Goliath has defied the armies of the living God. And more crucially, we have David's means, that being that he's killed wild animals. I believe you can address both of these elements with the same reasoning. It's often said that David was a man after God's own heart. He was. He trusted in God and he loved God like presumably no one else in Israel. If you want to know David's heart, read the Psalms, and you will see him pouring his heart out time and time and time again. And most significantly, he's doing this when he's on the run, abandoned, cold, frightened, and cowering in caves. There are countless examples you could turn to. Psalm 145.18, The Lord is near to all who call on him. Psalm 57.1, Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. In the case of Psalm 57, it was written literally in a cave. When David was pursued by King Saul, he was on the run for years. But when we find him in this situation, how does he start this psalm? He's taking refuge in the Lord until the disaster passes. Not if, until the disaster passes. As you may be familiar, when David was pursued by Saul, David managed not once but twice to get Saul or to corner Saul into a cave without him knowing where he stole a corner of his robe. Now, David could have taken either of these opportunities to kill Saul and declare himself as king, a position for which he'd been anointed. But that wasn't in God's timings. So David doesn't. Here is a man who utterly trusts God. Who here has that sort of faith? Because this is the sort of man or a teenager that can stand up against a giant. Now all of these examples, including on the battlefield of Elah, are when David is at least a teenager. I want to argue that the faith he has in God and the complete trust that he has in God is rooted much earlier And to better understand this, I want to cover a theory closer to our times. In the late 1930s, before World War II, the British High Command were worried, and they had good reason. They said in in their predictions that if there was a large-scale air offensive launched against London, the economic, cultural and population centre of England, there really wasn't much that they could do to stop it. They estimated that if that was to occur, they'd lose half a million citizens, a million would be injured, and countless buildings would be destroyed. They were so worried that they developed this series of psychiatric wards built on the outskirts of London just to house the people that would be so affected by the bombardment. Then in September 1940, the war came to the British mainland. Over eight months, the German Air Force bombed indiscriminately and without mercy... By the end of the eight months, 40,000 Londoners lay dead. 
46,000 lay injured and a million buildings had been destroyed. These results were within reason of what the pre-war military planners had thought was possible. However, not one single prediction about how London and Londoners would react came to pass. The panic never materialised. To their astonishment, even as the bombardments were increasing in ferocity, what the military planners noted was not, uh, it wasn't just courage, but indifference. In one example, an air raid siren went off in a random neighbourhood of London, and what happened? Nothing. Boys continued kicking footballs, policemen continued on their beat, and shopkeepers and shoppers continued to haggle. After the war, a Canadian psychologist, J.T. McCurdy, looked into this phenomenon to understand what was going on. He surmised that when a bomb falls in a civilian population area, it splits the group into three distinct groupings. First of all, there are those who die. These people are obviously the most affected by the bombardment. Then there are the near misses. These people see the destruction. They're horrified or they may even be wounded. They are left with a deep impression which could take many forms from indifference to shock to long-term psychological effects. And then there are the remote misses. These people hear the sirens, they feel the explosions, but the bombing occurred in the next suburb over. For them, their response to the bombing is the complete opposite of the near misses. The, first, the second, third and fourth time that this population experiences a remote miss, McCurdy noted the emotion associated was a feeling of excitement with a flavour of invulnerability. McCurdy summarised it as this, and this quote is really something. We are also prone to be afraid of being afraid. And the conquering of fear produces exhilaration. When we've been afraid that we may panic in an air raid, and when it has happened, we've exhibited to others nothing but a calm exterior, and we are now safe. The contrast between the previous apprehension and the present relief and feeling of security promotes a confidence that is the very father and mother of courage. Promotes a confidence that is the very father and mother of courage. The British military planners assumed the worst prior to the war, and who could fault them? They thought there would be a standardised response to the bombings of London. And whilst there was much pain, misery, death and destruction, and I don't want to discount that for a second, there could be people in the room that were affected personally by the Blitz or had family in the Blitz. But somehow, these bombings made a portion of the population even stronger. Linking this back to the story, where did David's courage come from? I said it before, for years, David kept his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came for his sheep, David actively went after it. He seized it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it, 1 Samuel 17, 35. Think about that for a moment. David pursued lions and bears. By contrast, look at what happened last year in Sydney when a couple of lions escaped from Taronga. There was mass panic, shutdowns, probably a royal commission. To use McCurdy's language, David had a lifetime 
of remote misses. His whole life, David looked fear, death and intimidation in the face and he prevailed. As proven by David's encounter with Goliath and countless other examples throughout his life, these remote misses early in his life developed in David an unwavering faith in God. His faith was repeatedly forged in the hottest of fires so that when he was on the battlefield of Elah, he saw the size of Goliath and knew that his God was so much bigger. Imagine living that life. Imagine living a life so rock solid in your faith. So you may be asking yourself, what does this all have to do with me? It's simple. We are called to be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.9 No matter who you are, and without a doubt, you have a Goliath in your life. It could theoretically be anything. Your Goliath could be like me trying to share the gospel with colleagues, something that I'm sure many people struggle with. Your Goliath may be a past trauma. Or your Goliath could be a fear of the future. Your, your Goliath could be a crippling physical ailment. Or it could be simply or it could be a crippling unforgiveness from when someone has wronged you in your life. Your Goliath could simply be summoning up enough courage to come through the doors this morning to a church where you don't know someone. Someone may have conquered a Goliath by simply walking through those doors this morning. You simply don't know what burden people have. For me, though, I figured that if I'm to give this message any authority, I needed to step up myself and do things which are very uncomfortable. (laughs) A number of years ago, I knew a young Christian man very well. The opportunity arose for him to move far from Canberra to pursue a relationship which until that point had been quite long distance. Uh, At the time, I didn't feel very comfortable in this relationship um, or his decision to move. He'd planned for a long time to move and in the months preceding his actual move, I received a dream, a very simple dream. It was two characters and one very simple message. It was me standing across from him saying, you're not going to marry her. That was it. I sat on that dream for probably a month or so. I really wrestled with the fact as to whether or not I should deliver this or not. He'd already started planning and by this point, uh, his, his, plannings, his plans were, were well along. Then one week after church, I finally summoned up enough courage and I just gave it to him straight. I think now when I reflect on it, I realise that this must have been a very hard message to receive, something like that, especially when you're, you're travelling interstate. And that's why I was so nervous. In either case, he nodded and he took it on board. He continued with his plans to move and he moved interstate. Then around a year later, we heard the fateful news that this man had taken his own life. Obviously, this was a time for reflection, lamentations and many what-ifs. It took many of us back here in Canberra by surprise. So whilst my intervention, as well as many others, was ultimately and tragically not successful, I can at least look back at this period and the time that I stood up to the battle line and many others here in the church did as well. It also showed to me God's love, care and personal touch for this individual, someone he loved deeply. 
Reflecting on this time in my life, I discovered and I thought that if a similar occurrence happens, again, I'm not going to stop. And it did so in mid-2022. I received another very clear dream, one which I was not going to sit on. It too was a very simple dream in nature. Maybe God knows I'm simple and therefore I need simple dreams. In either case, the dream was of two people. Both were blind and both were wearing blindfolds. These two men in real life are both Christians, one of whom I know very well, and the other is the brother of a friend. On this occasion, I sat on this dream for probably about half a day, but it kept gnawing at me and gnawing at me, and I could not let go. So to bring today's session to a close, the Goliaths say, dreams are just dreams. Don't relay that dream. You'll alienate your mate and you'll look like the biggest weirdo in front of this other guy. Stay behind the battle line, bring bring some provisions to your brother and whatever you do, don't step out in faith. Don't step up to the battle line. But we know that our Goliath is not that strong. And I know that no matter what happened, I was going to be okay. So to my good mate, I relayed the dream and bam, like a metaphorical stone between the eyes, not a real one, it was the message for him. It hit him right in between the eyes. From my perspective, this guy seemed to have it all together and his Christian walk was going really well. But that wasn't the case, far from it. This dream was a reminder for him that yes, he'd been lapsing, he had walked away and that right now he did feel spiritually blind. A moment of revelation, sorry, a moment of courage may lead to a lifetime of revelation. God gave me this line when I was writing this sermon. I googled it and I couldn't find it anywhere on the internet, so I'm pretty certain this is the case. A moment of courage may lead to a lifetime of revelation. A moment to address a past trauma may lead to a lifetime of revelation. A moment to forgive someone may lead to a lifetime of revelation. A moment to walk through a door you thought impossible to open may lead to a lifetime of revelation. And so on to the next one. A very good friend's brother. I never had much to do with this guy growing up, but I thought, why does that matter? So I wrote the message. I I redrafted it. I had it wife-proofed. I redrafted it again. And then I sent it. It was funny that at around this time, uh, Laura was insistent, insisting that we watch this social workery thing on Netflix. In the end, I quite enjoyed watching Brené Brown's special, A Call to Courage, which some of you may have seen. I remember she was talking about one of the most excruciating moments in modern life, and that's when you send a message like this to someone, and then you see the three pulsating dots as they reply, <laughs> and they bounce, and they bounce, and they bounce. I swear this guy was writing a response for 15 minutes. When you step out in faith and you send a message like this, those minutes felt like dog minutes, at least seven times longer. So finally his response arrived. It was long and it was very detailed. His response wasn't the figurative bolt from heaven, but it did open up a huge amount of information and dialogue about a lot of issues that he'd been going through, which I wasn't privy to up until that point. He did say that, yes, the dream was accurate and he did feel spiritually blind. He was going to pray over it and think about this image afterwards. God gave me this much, 
and it was the least that I could do with it. Can I get a keyboard player up to play? Thanks. David had a faith distinct from anyone in Israel, and he saved and then united the entire country. We can do the same. When we are walking in faith, we are a new creation, and in God we have a new identity. There are some great examples from the Bible where this is so. As Adam said the other week, Gideon was hiding in a wine press. And how does God address him? Mighty man of valour. Gideon must have looked over his shoulder and thought that the angel had his coordinates wrong. Gideon was not. Sorry. God doesn't see a cow in Gideon. When we meet Peter in the Bible, he's called Simon. Simon means reed-like or wavering. Jesus gives him a new identity, Peter, meaning rock, the rock upon which his church would be built. And finally, David, by everyone, including his family, is seen as just a shepherd. But God sees him as a king who can kill giants. And we are similarly called. As the Lord said to Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So for the altar call today, if you lack courage to face the Goliath in your life, I encourage you to come up here and seek prayer for that. If you feel like David, a Hakadan, I encourage you to seek prayer for that so that you can better see yourself as God sees you. And if you found yourself engaging the enemy on their terms, on the back foot, I encourage you to seek prayer for that, for fresh insights in, into how you can fight your Goliaths. If any of these speak to you, I encourage you to seek prayer for that. Thank you. I'll hand back to Adam. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for bringing the word, for being courageous, for sharing what God has been stirring in you, but also how he's been working in and through you, uh, just in those areas of stepping out. And I think uh, there's definitely something here for us this morning to take away, that, that God has called us to be people of courage, people who don't shrink back and are destroyed, but, but step out in faith uh, in response to the Lord, his leading and all that he has done. So I might have just invite you to stand at this point, please. And could the uh, prayer teams just make their way forward to the front? Of course, we, we love to offer prayer ministry each and every service, each and every time we gather. We really believe that uh, prayer is powerful and effective, as it says in James chapter 5. We really believe that God is the God who breaks through. And just as Dave said, you know, just a, a moment of courage may lead to a lifetime of revelation. You never know this morning, a moment of courage to come and receive prayer along the lines of, of the, the areas that Dave called out. You never know what sort of breakthrough might come, what sort of healing might come. Um, so let me encourage you in those particular areas uh, this morning or just the general call that you'd love to be a person, follower of Jesus, 
who has uh, just a fresh sense of courage, a greater sense of courage here this morning. So that, that's the invitation, as well as those other specific things that Dave called out. So uh, let me pray for us, and uh, you're, you're free to come and, and receive prayer. So Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for time in your presence, Lord God. I thank you for the joy and privilege of being able to worship you and honor you in our praise, Lord, for being able to share in communion together. But Lord, thank you for the the joy and privilege of being able to open up your word. Lord, I thank you for Dave. I thank you for this message that he's brought to us this morning. Lord, I thank you for the way that you've been at work in his own heart and life, Lord God helping him to, to, to grow in courage, Lord God, and step out, Lord. And uh, I just pray that for each and every one of us here this morning, that, Lord, uh, even right now, you would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, Lord, uh, bringing your touch, Lord God, that we would be a people of courage, Lord God. I pray that we would anchor into the truth and the reality of your greatness, God, of, of how big and how great and how strong you are, Lord. You are... Uh, greater and bigger than any giants we might face, Lord. So help us to live with that perspective, Lord God, I pray. And Lord, I just pray for anyone here this morning who may be feeling like they're lacking courage or just feeling weak or feeling unworthy or feeling um, like David was described as the one who's chosen last, who's forgotten about, anything like that. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those hearts this morning, Lord. Lord, uh, as we go from here this morning, may we go just more aware of your love, of your grace, of your presence with us, Lord God. And may this be a week, Lord God, where we stand firm in you, where we know your courage, Lord, where we are strong and courageous, Lord God, as you call us to be. Thank you that we don't have to do that alone, that it's by your spirit, Lord God. And we ask for your help in that area this morning. And it's in your wonderful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.